I'm Jason Ritchie, and you are listening to Talking Blues. I was thinking of you on Sunday night. Was it Sunday night or Monday night when your Saints played and won the sweet game? Yeah, yeah. Three out of four with those guys. But, you know, the the one that mattered was that playoff one, you know, last year. And they're not going to let us live that down. And, hey, we got another. We're going to see him again. And, you know, in a few weeks. So, you know, it's, you know, it's, it's not over yet. So when did you become a Saints fan? Um, I fell in love with football, period, when I moved to New Orleans in 2010. I, uh, I grew up in a family that was very into football, and I wasn't. I was kind of the, the gay kid that liked skateboarding and art and music, and I would go hide when the family got around to watch football. <laughs> And uh, I moved down south in 95 and eventually made my way to Mississippi. Uh, Once I was in Mississippi, I started making frequent trips to New Orleans and checking it out. So I fell in love with the city the very first time I ever came here. I couldn't believe it. Uh, The gay scene was incredible. The music, of course, is incredible. The the whole city looks like a giant Tim Burton set, you know. (laughs) Right. It's incredible. Right. And, uh, I, and the food. Right. So, so, so I started coming back a lot and, um, I finally moved here in 2010 and between Katrina and, and the Saints championship, the city had a very different vibe when I visited. It was very subdued, like, like it is now with COVID and having just come off of Ida, the hurricane, right. there's a kind of depression, kind of a feeling in the city. Take that and magnify that by 20. Okay. And that's what it, or more, that's what it was like after Katrina. But when the saints won the championship, the entire city changed. And, and, and I was blown away that this dumb game football, this stupid sport for jocks and idiots was such a cultural force. And I couldn't even get drug dealers to deliver dope during football games. But I started paying attention, right? The the byproduct was me and my brother had had some difficulties communicating for like seven years. After I got into football, football provided a segue between us of something that we could talk about that was sort of uh, benign, that didn't cause any problems. And it eventually led the way to the healing of that relationship. So it wasn't just how football changed the city of New Orleans. It wasn't just the social gatherings that I finally was able to see value in, family coming together despite their differences, people sitting down together, new friends coming over that you're not so sure about that you can have just watch the game, right? all of these wonderful benefits that come from a social activity or a sport like football, that was all great, but it repaired my relationship with my brother. I watched it heal the city of New Orleans and every Sunday we have a great time. We, we leave the door wide open on Sundays and people just walk in the house that we know every Sunday, whether the saints are playing or not, 
and there's it's just an open time for us to have with our friends. So it's very important to me, and I appreciate you thinking of me when we beat Tom Brady and Tampa and the rest of that corporate nonsense over there. Yeah. Was there a moment in, in the history of your love for the game, or was there a moment when everything changed for, for you with football? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think I think it was probably like, unfortunately, it was a running back named Chris Ivory that I found attractive. <laughs> I'm sure Chris would be very upset to hear that, right? But or bummed. Maybe he'd feel good. I don't know. <laughs> that was the moment I went. I went. Okay, wait a minute. I'm gonna. There's good looking men involved in this, right? Why, why, how have I missed this, right? And the, 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 the pants alone, right? Is like, you know, let's watch this game, you know. <laughs> I would like to begin by asking you about how you got into music. Um, my mother kind of like sowed the seed, I guess. So, you know, she was a, you know, I'm not going to say she was an avid music fan, but she talked to me a lot about the sixties and sixties music. So, um, there were records around the house that got listened to. Um, there was a, there was a lot of stuff that was like kind of typical of her age group, like, uh, Tom Jones and Neil Diamond and stuff. But there was also Joni Mitchell and Janis Joplin and some Jimi Hendrix and then also in there, there was a bunch of Howlin' Wolf and Muddy Waters and stuff like that, you know. So I started playing in music on my own, right, like guitar and stuff, because I had a friend that was into it, into guitar. And he was, and I was into writing lyrics and singing. And I was into the Dead Kennedys and the Misfits and seven seconds and Fugazi and the Pixies and punk music. Um, I liked that music because it had a message that communicated to that time in American culture. Okay. And, and a message that I felt was unfiltered through uh, money, mainstream media and money uh, in particular, Jello Biafra of the dead Kennedys and I, I devoured, there was a, there was a spoken word album, a double album called No More Cocoons. And it was very political. And uh, it was also very prophetic, right? Like everything he said would later sort of come true and, and is still sort of coming true, right? Without getting too political, I'll leave it at that. Um, and I was very into this music and I felt like this is the music that is, that speaks to me. So, I started playing with this guy. His name was Sam Turner, this friend of mine. We were both kind of nerds. I was in the skateboard culture too. So I was largely influenced by a lot of the music coming in through skateboard videos, like fire hose, right? And the drunk engines and in the sex pistols and Ramones and all this stuff that I was seeing and hearing for the first time in videos, skateboarding videos, which, you know, some of which were made by like names like Spike Jones. Right. Like, but back then they were little VHS tapes that were made in somebody's garage, you know, filming a 
a TV set, right, with a camera and then rewinding. It was just incredible. It fisheye lens stuff. It's a wonderful time in my life. Wonderful. Very grateful to be a part of skate culture my entire life. So I started taking like the singing and the songwriting thing to my friend Sam and working with songs. Eventually I got into guitar. Um, the guys in the band started singing. So I started getting benched. We already had a guitar player. I wasn't really good enough to play guitar in the band. I got a harmonica. My teacher told me to get into blues music. I didn't want to. I had no interest in it. None at all. Um, shortly thereafter, the teachers started telling me about musicians that were coming to Maine, like Charlie Musselwhite, and Buckwheat Zydeco, and James Cotton, and more. And I started asking my mother, can we go? And they were at a restaurant that served alcohol, but kids, kids could go because there was a restaurant. And so I went and I saw Cotton and Musselwhite and Buck, all those names I just mentioned and more at 13, 14 years old. And that's when I started to sort of see that there was a message in blues music that was similar in sincerity to the message of the punk movement in that it was real to those people that were singing it. Okay. And it, in, in many ways, it was, it had nothing to do with making a big record deal at, um, you know, I'm talking about the, the the artists that I grew up with that were on the radio it was like Bon Jovi, right? Like like Poison, like uh, like uh, I mean Madonna, who I like, but still, um, and and like uh, uh, Tiffany, right? And artists that were already kind of part of a, you know a mill, so to speak, that was cranking out stuff that was advertised that, that they're selling you the this music the same way they'd sell you deodorant. Okay. And, and, and I felt that this blues thing was this undiscovered sort of world uh, where there was lyrics that, that maybe didn't have as much to do with my culture, but I could tell that those guys meant it. Like, like when, when Cotton was singing, I could tell that he meant it. That it wasn't garbage, it wasn't bullshit, it wasn't some kind of fad, okay? It wasn't a product of the 80s or the 70s or the 60s or the 90s or whatever. It was, it was a timeless music that meant something to the artist performing it. And thus, I started to get involved in thinking about, well, geez, I already play harmonica. Maybe I could learn how to do something a little bit like that. So as, as a young kid who plays the harmonica, what... How do you react to seeing a James Cotton or a Charlie Musselwhite? Yeah. Right. So, so pretty, pretty arrogant, uh, to be honest. Like, you know, there, there were moments in the show where I was like, oh, my God, I'll never be able to do that. But there were also a lot of moments where I was like, you know what? I think I got this right. Like, I think I can. I, I know that already. Right. And I know or I know he's playing an A harp in the key of A. Right. I've heard that sound. That's like Jimmy Reed. You know, like I would I was surrounded by people that were giving me information that was allowing me to digest what I was seeing. Or if I didn't understand what I was seeing at the time, people were would explain it to me afterwards. You know, so there was a guy in Maine named D.W. Gill who was like this harmonica guy that had played with Muddy had played with Jimmy Rogers, you know. 
not really in their bands, but it sat in or had opened with them and stuff. And it was a great traditional blues harmonica player. And he was not my harmonica teacher, but I did take lessons from him. And my mother was a little uh, skeptical about allowing me around him because he would like hit on her and he like smokes weed and like he'd show up smelling like weed and he might say fuck or shit in the middle of a lesson. You know, I'm like 13, 14 years old. Right. You, you know, my mom was like, I don't know if this guy's the best guy to be around my kid, but at the same time, this is a guy that was really breaking it down to me. So I had a teacher that's going, okay, here's the major scale. Here's the blue scale. Here's how to do this. But I had another teacher that's kind of, giving me the, the more like cultural appreciation of like, Hey, listen, you know, don't, don't play like that guy. That guy's full of shit. This is the guy you need to listen to. And these are the old cats and this is how it's really done. And you need to stick with this. And, and that went on and on. There was a lot more of those kind of guys in my life. You know, Mark Hummel, Madison Slim. And then later and most importantly was Pat Ramsey. Adam Gusso was another. Yeah. Well, how how did you react to that idea of you got to play like these people? Well, as a child, as a young kid, I was um, I was very uh, teachable, uh, so I I went with it. Um, I really I, I discarded all of the punk records, right? Like I I mean I didn't throw them away, but I stopped listening to all of that. I became a complete blues, like what we call today a blues Nazi. So, you know, meaning that there's like a period of like 1940 to like 61 uh, and only like three labels or something of, you know, right. And this is the only music that really matters. And, and like a lot of like little buzz phrases, like less is more and accentuate everything, accentuate nothing and too many notes and all of those kind of ideas were very much like part of my identity. Okay, so and not just as a musician, but I was dressing in suits and the pompadour and the in the old gear, and and this is what I was listening to. I was listening to Little Walter, and you know, I you listen. You was allowed to listen to Kim Wilson. You're allowed to listen to Hummel, but in maybe Piazza, but like not Butterfield. Like he didn't do it right. You know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff, right? So like, and I was of that school, and I was very much like a hundred percent drinking that Kool-Aid. And I'm so glad that I did. Right. Because now today I can go and do a gig with Nick Moss or somebody like that and really, really play that music the way that Nick wants it played. Right. Or the way that Bruce Eglar wants it played. Right. And whether I agree with that and not as an artistic life outing, I I reserve all opinions on that because I, I've heard it done so well that I don't know what I think. Like, you know, you listen to Nick Curran's records, right? Like the, the earlier ones, right? They're, they're recorded traditional. They're played traditional. They're sang traditional. You literally cannot tell the difference sometimes between Nick and, and, and Johnny Guitar Watson or Nick and, and, and Little Richard. And it's amazing. And, and, and so I could sit here and say, oh, well, there's no real artistry in that because he's recreating something that's already been done. Or it's like it's like doing Easy Rider with the movie with different actors and not changing anything of the plot. But you listen to it and it's so good. How do I sit here and say like, oh, well, that doesn't have any real artistic value. I mean, geez, I, I don't even know anymore. Right. I don't know. So yeah. at what point did you think 
I'm going to be a musician or music is the path that I want to follow. Okay, that's pretty easy. So I was in college and that wasn't working out. I was spending way too much time trying to, to figure out how to play like little Walter. Okay. And George Smith. Right. And, um, you know, I was doing drugs, drinking and in, in with that crowd, I still was big into skateboarding. I, I wasn't looking at skateboarding as a career, but that were all, those were all my friends. Those were the parties I went to, you know, I, I had a shop sponsor right in Idaho and I was skating all the time and hurting myself and blah, blah, blah. But like, I got a job, like I got a couple of jobs. I, I, I waited tables for a while. I did dry cleaning. I worked in department stores. I was a clerk overnight at a, a gas station you know, where I would listen to blues records all night and, you know, pretend to clean and restock the shelves and really just be trying to play all that stuff. And eventually, like, I made a decision that I was just going to stop doing all that. And, you know, I had a couple of gigs, right? Like I had a, you know, a weekend gig and and then I would pick up a Wednesday or Thursday here. So I, I guess that really, really thoroughly 100% took place. Like I, I started it in 95 when I left Idaho where I was in college and had played and was playing music up there with bands. I left there and moved to Memphis. Okay. To be around Pat Ramsey. Now I still kept a day job for like a year. And then I got the job with junior Kimbrough. And David Kimbrough. So for a few for a year or so there, I was working with those guys exclusively, and I had no job, and th- there wasn't any jobs to be had in Potts Camp, Mississippi, right? It's just south of, of Holly Springs. There's a post office and a convenience store. That was it. And so I, I, I lived with David. You know, I play I played with David. I, I probably made thirty five dollars a week, right? But but there was weed, and there was alcohol, and there was sex. Okay, so all of that was fine. So in the real transition happened in 98 when I got out of jail in Florida. And for a year I worked waiting tables and at a record store. And in 99, I had enough work as a musician to quit those jobs, supplement my income with lessons and then playing. So at that time I was working with a band out of Florida called the knuckle busters I was working with a trio with an artist named Keith Brown who left the United States and moved to France and has had a career over there. And he was great. He was from Memphis and uh, he was a, 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 uh, like, he was like a Keb Mo guy, but he could do Robert Johnson and stuff. Black dude. He was very cool. It was in a band with him and Mark Teleska down in Florida, the bassist. So right around that time, like 99, I just made a decision to wake up in the morning at eight or nine in the morning and go to work, whether I had a gig or not, whether that was putting flyers up for lessons, because this is before the internet really, okay? And, or, or, or practicing or, 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 or contacting people or going to jams or whatever it was, just working at nothing but making a living playing music. By 2001, I was in Big Al and the Heavyweights. That was my first touring band that played all of the states in the United States. At that time, that band was a very popular band, very popular festival outfit, like 
two, three from the headliner, right? And uh, you know, I was making eight, eight or $900 a week with Al. I moved to Nashville and I haven't looked back since. Haven't had a day job since. Okay, so at what point did you think you were a credible harmonica player? I think my ego was probably overinflated from the very beginning. I, you know, I, I, you know, I, I think probably around like 93, 94, I thought I was good enough to make a living at this and, or was going to be one of the best ever, right? Like real sense of inflated sense of self, like, if I listen back to the music from that time period, including my first record, it's average. It's okay. Okay. But it's not on the level of like Hummel or Piazza or anything. It's not even close. It's not even close. It's good. It's good. It's good stuff. Like you can tell I'm a good kid, but, but should I have had an independent record out in 95, 96, 97? I'm not sure. Right. I think, I think the album that kind of puts me on the map whether I like it or not, right, is like probably uh, feel good funk or something of my like two thousand and four, I think, or yeah, like right around there, two thousand three, two thousand four. You hear Jason sounding like Jason, okay, and not like me sounding like okay. Here's a Junior Wells lick. Here's a Kim lick. Here's a little Walter lick. Here's a Butterfield lick. Right. Okay, so what did the time in Mississippi mean to you and, and, and your evolution of your idea of the blues? Or did it mean anything to you in that way? Yeah, it meant a lot. Like, okay, so, so I went down there, you know, with this attitude, you know, that, that I was going to, I wanted to be one of those guys, right? Like, so like when I got the job with, you know, David hired me off the street in Memphis, so I, I was a crackhead in Memphis. My life was in total downward spiral. Spiral. Do you know that this is going on at this point when you're going on when you said when you describe it as a down, downward spiral? Yeah. Do you know? Not really. I had no idea how dangerous it was. Like I was just starting to smoke crack, and it was like you know, like every other weekend or every weekend or you know, it was getting it was getting dangerous. I, I, I had a $25 a week. I went from an apartment to a $25 a week flop house where there were rats and there were people coming in and out and stuff. All right. And, and, and you know, I don't think I knew at 21 years old, like how much danger I was in. Now, I can tell you about scenarios that are very alarming things that happened that I don't think I realized like how much trouble I was in and like how unprepared I was for that world, that part of the South, that the criminal element that exists around that and the amount of expertise manipulation that was taking place around me as a young white Yankee in the the worst parts of Memphis, okay, Vance Street and everything. So David finds me playing on the street for money, for, for dope, right? And, and, and takes me to Mississippi, essentially. 
puts me in a safe house in the country. So listen, it's okay to drink and it's okay to smoke weed, but you can't do that shit. All right. And, and like, and that, so I, I, I was able to put a year right in between that. And it was because of David. So when I got there, like culturally, I was like, oh, well, I'll just fit right in. Like I'll dress like them and I'll talk like them and I'll figure out, you know, <laughs> right. And that didn't go over very good at all. Like, you know, like they picked up on it right away. And I don't know if they were insulted or not. I don't, I don't think so. Right. I think it was more like, oh, look at this kitty. We, we can really, we can really fuck with this kid because he has no sense of, he has no sense of self, right? Of individuality, right? He is, he can't stick up for himself. If I'm sitting, if I'm a white kid from Maine trying to act like I'm a black guy from Mississippi, that's a target. That, that's an absolute target, right? So it took me a little while to figure out down there that what, how I needed to be was what I needed to do was recognize that, you know, that this music is not part of my culture. Okay. That the the food isn't part of my culture, that the the slang isn't part of my culture, that, that David Kimbrough has relatives, you know, that, that are like Fred McDowell, right. Or like, you know, like that are related to John Lee Hooker that like, that this is part of their music that like, like I heard fattening frogs for snakes, the Sonny Boy title in conversation as an expression of speech that I would go into, ju- I would go into diners to get breakfast and Sonny Boy is on the jukebox, you know, not because of some kind of like um, cultural, like th- th- that's, what that's what they're listening to. Like that, you know, you know what I mean? That's their music. So, so like after seeing enough of that, right. I was like, Oh Jesus, Jay, you know, just, you know, just be yourself. Right. You know, talk like you, you know, you stick up for yourself, too. Right. Like, you know, but do, yeah. do you know who that self is? Yeah, I think I do now, you know, but I. But then, I mean, could you find that person at back then? I mean, yeah, I, you know, it was like a kind of a Buddhist process in instead of like, you know, putting out that self. I just started stripping away what was not right. It's not traditional blues it's not an outfit it's not a haircut it's not the way you talk it's not this right like just be real be honest okay and when i did that i got along a lot better and i also kind of recognized what the whole world is like really you know kind of manically talking about now which is that you know this music is not part of my culture right like so you know they're 95 i started I started listening. I'm not going to name any names, but there were white artists, professional white artists, blues artists that would talk black in between their songs. And and I started to see that and go, you know, I used to do that. And that's really actually sort of insulting. So I, there was no word for it then. We didn't, we didn't have the word appropriation. Okay. But I was able to see it and was able to go, oh yeah, not real. I don't want to do that. Right. And then, and then when that happened, okay, all this other stuff started to open up that had nothing to do with music, sexuality. Let's, what about this old Pixies record that I used to love? Well, put that back on a little bit. This, cause, cause that is part of my culture, right? That is like, you know, there's this giant debate, you know, that 
white people don't have any culture. Well, I don't know. Growing up as a skateboarder, there was a tremendous amount of culture in that community. Okay. And and I would argue that the Pixies and Nirvana and and the Replacements and the Ramones and the Sex Pistols and, and all of those bands and Lou Reed and all that, that's, this is a big part of my culture, especially with drugs and alcohol, especially with hard drugs, the, the combination of, those, of all those things, the DIY attitude, making your own flyers, distributing them. I did all of that for, for, my, for my early blues projects. So that, that was ingrained in me, right, by, by punk culture. So I just sort of went back to that. So like when you look at like images of me from 2002, 2003, all the way up to like 2009, 2010, what you see is a very androgynous kind of punk looking kid. So it's, that's not an outfit. Okay, that's that was me embracing not only myself as a gay man or a bisexual man, but but as as somebody that's open to, to what it is that makes me me. Everything from being born in Maine and having a you know fucked up dad and a fucked up mom who I love, okay? But also, you know, hey, I love this blues music too, but this isn't who I am. And this isn't what I do. And in many ways, like my attitude was that, you know, Ozzy Osbourne and Black Sabbath were a lot more true to the formula that little Walter and Muddy had than many of the white artists that were mimicking traditional 1950s music. So how do you then, you, you, you reach this point where you think, well, this isn't really me, but by this point, you know how to play the blues, right? I mean, sort of, probably too many notes, right? You know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but then how do you navigate that? You say, okay, this isn't truly me. Yeah. I know how to play with people like Nick Moss. I know the traditional stuff. I want to pick up my punk music. Yeah. You still kind of stay, like you don't go back to punk, you stay with the blues. Right. Well, like I think Pat Ramsey opened the door for me. Okay. So I, you know, that was the reason I moved to Memphis mm-hmm. as I heard that guy. So he was, you know, Johnny Winter's ex side and had had a stint with the Almond Brothers and played with some other people too. And so Pat was playing technically fast, but he was using a different grouping of notes what we in music call blues notes, flat sevens, flat thirds, flat fives, and playing those fast. Whereas some of the other guys who were playing fast at the time, they, they weren't doing that. So, so, so I was able to recognize, you know, even without knowing what I just mentioned, that element of harmony, what those notes are, how they work, why they're called blue notes, etc. I was able to recognize that there was a difference between Pat and other people that were playing. So that's when I stopped sort of playing traditionally, okay? And started moving more in a blues rock format, okay? Also, when I was with Junior Kimbrough and R.L. Burnside, you have to remember, and David Kimbrough, you have to remember that those musicians at the time that I was with them were obscure, okay? That R.L. had not cut the punk record with John Spencer. Junior Kimbrough had not died. There was no such thing as a North Mississippi All-Stars and the Black Keys hadn't made their first record, which was an essentially a Junior Kimbrough, R.L. Burnside cover band. Okay, that hadn't happened. Okay, so nobody knew who those artists were. However, 
I was able to recognize much of that music was punk. Right? Had much, had little to do with traditional Chicago blues or West Coast blues or BB King or Uptown. It was amplified Delta blues that we now know as Hill Country music. At that time, it didn't even really have the name Hill Country music. It really wasn't even out, right? Maybe some people called it that, but but nobody down there that I know of, right? So it, it was just the music of, of, of that group of people who, like I said before, were all sort of related, right? And, and this music, it just sort of morphed into a lot of one chord, hypnotic, you know, repetitive stuff, right? So, so I had seen music played by black people, okay, that had nothing to do with what certain white people were saying was blues. So that stopped me from giving any merit to the blues police, so to speak, who were saying, oh, you can do this and you can't do that. And I, I'm hearing David Kimbrough, he's covering Prince, he's covering Tyrone Davis. He, he, he's, he's into all this stuff. You know, you know, David Kimbrough had never heard Little Walter. Never even heard him. Ne- never heard of him. I, I turned the Kimbroughs onto Little Walter, right? You know, you know th- th- this, this wasn't part of that group. Right of that paradigm, right? It wasn't part of that Chicago blues. What we look at as traditional blues didn't exist in that area of the country. Okay, now they dug it and stuff, right? Right, but it was more about the songs, right? Or like whatever. All right, it was very different. So I didn't have this idea of this is blues and this isn't blues. And not only that, I was armed with some life experience that told me that these people who said say those kinds of things. Are, are not correct, all right? They're not correct that this is blues music or this isn't blues music or any of that. And, and I mean, well, you can listen to the records themselves and you got Big Walter playing La Cucaracha, right? Well, now, what would happen if he hadn't done that and I decided to record La Cucaracha on a blues record? You know, a bunch of people would say, hey, well, that's not blues, right? That's Mexican music. Like, what are you doing? Or what an eclectic reach for Mr. Ritchie here you know, spanning the cultural, you know, it wasn't about that. It was just like, Hey, I like this song. People dance to it. Let's play it. Right. Did you ever care? Yes. Yeah. Did I, you mean, did I ever care what people said? Yeah. Like how did did that, that informed you in the way that you approach music? I think that I, I think I went overboard. I think I reacted harder. I think I, I think I threw more of my sexuality into my stage performances than I needed to. I think I played harder and faster than I needed to. I, I, I think that I responded in a way that was very punk. That was like, well, you know, like, fuck y'all, right? Like, right, right up to that acceptance speech that I gave at the Blues Music Awards. You know, I think that was a fine example of a kid that was an egomaniac with an inferiority complex. Right. And I don't think it was until, you know, now that I started to kind of go, okay, wait a minute. Like, where are those guys right again? Right. Like, remember when I was a kid and they said this and that, like, maybe I should listen to that. Right. Like, stop having so many opinions about things. What is that? Was that just growing up? Is that 
what makes you look back and look at things differently? I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, you have to, you have to realize that coming out of the closet in 2004 was very different than doing it now. And even if we look in the blues world today, okay, there are a number of artists that I know of that are still in the closet. Okay. Why? Right. Like it's hard. It's hard. It's, there's a, there's a masculine element to this music and, and there has been for a while. And although we know about little Richard, although we know about Charles Brown, there wasn't an out, out thing going on. Okay. So coming out at that time, I, I think I, it was a defense mechanism, you know, of like, oh, fuck you. You know what I mean? Like, like I'm going to do this and I'm going to do it. You know, I'm not, not only am I going to come out of the closet, but I'm, I'm going to kick the doors down, you know? And, uh, and, 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 and not only that, but I'd be lying if I didn't think mistakenly, I mistakenly thought that maybe that would create enough buzz also that people would book me, right? Maybe not in the blues world, but in the gay community, which of course never really happened, right? How difficult was it to make that decision to come out? Um, I was in a band that was pretty homophobic for a year. And uh, doing a year of that was enough to, to make me brave enough to make the decision. I just couldn't do it anymore. I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't allow, you know, and I, I also just got tired of people asking me like, will you, will you go to the strip club or where's your girlfriend and blah, blah, blah. And then, you know, I came out shortly, you know, a couple of, maybe a year before I met my boyfriend, Brady, who I was with for seven, almost eight years, you know, and it would have been very unfair to Brady had I remained in the closet. Although he wasn't part of that decision. The other thing is I never would have found a boyfriend like Brady if I had been in the closet. And I, and I knew that, right? And I just got tired of hiding it and not being able to talk about it. And did it affect your career? Like, I would say 100% it did. All negative. I, I, I cannot gauge that because... Very few people wrote to me and said, we won't book you because you're gay. Okay. There, there, there were some, there were some, and, and, and you have to remember that, that I, I'm, I'm very much of the libertarian kind of mind in that I, I don't have a problem with somebody saying to me, you know, I don't book facts right now. I, I might not like that. Okay. But I enjoy and respect anybody's decision. I don't want to be part of an organization that doesn't want me. Right. So, so like, I don't know how many gigs I didn't get. Okay. And I don't know how many gigs I did get right. Because of that very few that I know very few people said, Oh, we're, we're, you know, I, I think I played two gay pride festivals the entire time I was out. Right. And then, you know, it, it didn't, it didn't work at all in my favor. I don't, I don't think, but maybe, I don't know, maybe there's some, you know, maybe there's some blues guys. 
or, or blues societies, or maybe there were some progressive couples at the time that came to my show just because I was gay. Right. You know, like, how do I know? I, I would say there were, I would say my estimation is that it was predominantly negative. Okay. But that's, but I very well could be wrong. Okay. But at this point, I think of you as somebody who's very well respected as a player. I wonder, was there a time when it changed? I mean, I think you're respected. I think people look at you as a very talented harmonica player. I think, yeah, I think in the beginning, I think the consensus amongst like my peers, okay, was, you know, he's very good technically. Okay, but there's, you know, I don't know about that. I don't know about it artistically. Okay. So I was okay with that. And I think that if I listen to my early recordings, that there's a lot of merit in that critique. Okay. I, I think that I was overly cerebral. I, again, I think I was also overly aggressive, not just as a, as a, as a, a, a harmonica player, but, but as a, as a, singer as a songwriter my presentation was very much about i'm going to make you understand right like this is you know on top of the beat ahead of the beat in terms of how i was t interpreting time so that gave it a very jagged urgent kind of a message to anytime you put on that music you know I'm talking about the delta groove catalog mostly you know um and then what happens is Jason goes through, you know, I go through all these life experiences. I, I lose everything. I'm homeless. I go to jail again for a year. Right. And, and music becomes much less my identity and much more something I do. And then I think once I start kind of questioning, like, geez, you know, Jay, you're frequently wrong. <laughs> You know, about a lot of things, right? Like life in general, family and how you treat people and money and all this stuff, right? That Like maybe that kind of attitude sort of slipped into my music a little bit where I started to kind of go, okay, well, let's take this cool element of this technique and let's slow it down and let's apply it to this and let's just take a breath, right? Like this isn't it's not the end of the world, right? You, you're, you're, you're not going to sell a million records. You're, you're, you're fat now. You know, you're old, <laughs> it's over, right? You know, you, you married a woman, you know, you married, you, you know, it's over, it's over, right? <laughs> right, like, and then th th that was sort of the ultimate, like, uh, taking off that final layer of the onion and just going, okay, geez, shucks, boy, guys, I don't know. This is who I am. I'm just a kid, you know, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know anything. I mean, right? was there like a low point? Is that how you come to that, or it's got nothing to do with that? There wasn't a moment. There, there was like, I think the closest thing to that is 2010, when the band fires me from my own band. Okay, so New Blood disbands. Okay, I lose the boyfriend. I, I, I relapse after 12 years of continuous total abstinence, 100% sobriety. I relapse. I relapse straight to crack cocaine. Eventually it's crack and heroin. 
I moved to New Orleans. I'm homeless here. I get a job finally playing with some guys. You know, it's it's not for a career. It's for money to get high. Okay, um, I'm fully expecting to die during this time period. That doesn't happen. I'm arrested instead. I spend another year in jail. It's humiliating experience. Um, I did a crime. I it was not a popular crime. I I robbed another musician. You know, a, a woman up in uh, Indiana. I robbed her. Stole some guitars and you know some pills and shit from her house. And you know that that made its way to the internet. And there were forums where people were saying, you know, I hope Jason gets raped in prison and things like that. Right and I had to read all this and, you know, I, uh, I think in many ways it was really good for me. Like, you know, it was really good for me to kind of just see like, wow, geez, you know, it really became a total scumbag there. <laughs> but okay, so do you, do you go back into addiction because of these things happening or is it not as simple as that? Like when getting yeah, kicked out of your band, losing your home, is that the automatic way into getting back into drugs or it has no. nothing to do with that. Has everything to do with it, but it goes. But the I, I think I may have portrayed the order wrong. All right, I got back into drugs and I lost. I lost the home. I lost the van. Right. Okay. okay the boy. The boyfriend left before the drugs, and he left primarily because of bipolar disorder. Okay, and my obsession with the occult at that time. Okay, so we're we're talking about Thelema and the order. Ordo Templi Orientis, a secret society associated with Aleister Crowley's religion, Thelema, which I was absolutely obsessed with because I had had paranormal experiences that I considered and I still consider to this day, despite the fact that I am a diagnosed mentally ill individual, diagnosed bipolar disorder, I still consider those, those, those experiences to be, to be demonic in nature. Okay. That was the, that's why Brady left me over those things. There was also some regular shit where he was too jealous. Okay. And we made an agreement to split up. Okay. Then came the drugs. Then came the band leaving. Then came intrepid dropping me. Then came Delta groove dropping me that, you know, and then you, and then you said at that point you're expecting to die. Right. This is because you're just so strung out? This is because you've lost hope? Yeah, um, because, okay, like the reason that I relapsed, okay, wasn't because Brady left me, okay? The reason that I relapsed is all I ever wanted from sobriety was a career in blues music, okay? The minute that I achieved that, because in 2010, I was a hot commodity, hotter than I am now. I was a higher festival booking than I am now. I, I, I demanded more out of clubs and I was working more. I had a, I had a, you know, until, until I finally got with Gulf Coast Records this year, I have not had a label comparable to Delta Groove since then, since 2010. Okay. So I achieved everything that I wanted to achieve, Mako. Money, the house, the bank account, the hot boyfriend, the perfect body, six pack of abs, the divider in the record stores, the festival booking, and it wasn't enough. I wanted more of it. But I was, I was somehow 
insightful enough to see that even if I were to achieve more, let's say Aerosmith level, that I would still feel the same way that I felt now, which was miserable and alone. And essentially, essentially, here's the real problem, okay? Without God. But I wasn't willing to look into God as an outlet because I was all about the other guy and what the other guy could do for me. Okay, so I just gave up. I abandoned the devil, but I wasn't looking for God. And I started smoking crack again because it was the only thing that ever made me feel good all the time. And unlike music, I didn't have to work at it. All right. All I had to do was have 20 bucks every 15, 20 minutes, right? <laughs> which is a lot, you know? Yeah. So working at music though, I mean, I can't imagine anybody getting as good as you without really working at it. And I, I presume that working at it is part of, passion that you have for playing whilst you, you just don't practice that much to get that good yeah I I was obsessive I guess that's part of your personality yeah yeah absolutely like the manic part of being bipolar and, and unmedicated too for so many years you know which the, the BPD bipolar disorder or mania really started to uh, manifest in my early thirties. So it was sort of part of my personality in my twenties. Okay. But became an issue in my early thirties when I was in a long-term relationship with a stable individual that expected some degree of reciprocation. Okay. That, that was not happening. Okay. Emotionally. Okay. Or, or even on a time kind of level. So I, I was a workaholic. Okay. I was an egomaniac. I, I was a narcissist. Okay. And I, I was, uh, and I was obsessed with, in a very competitive way with it, with this industry. But part of that obsession is probably what got you to where you were. Absolutely. Yeah. I wouldn't change a thing now, you know, but, but, but like, it sucks that so many people had to get hurt during that. I ignored my family. I told you I, you know, football at the beginning of our conversation repaired my relationship with my brother, but it was workaholism that, that, you know, look, you, you know, I grew up in a, in, a, in a household where I didn't feel like I was valued. Okay. Uh, where I, I felt like I, I wasn't of any real worth. Okay. And in this entire career, you know, I think for more musicians, I'm going to just project for a second. Uh, you know, musicians say, oh, I did it for the drugs and the girls, right? That's how I got into music, right? I think that's a nice thing to say. I think most of us are on stage screaming, please love me. And I think a lot of us artists in some way are looking, you know, not just artists too, but but people that are overly career-minded who are trying to, you know, keep up with the Joneses, so to speak, right? The house, the car, the job, the, 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 the right suit, the right tie, like the right business card, like in American Psycho, right? It, it's, it's all a compensation, right? You know, I'm going to take, I'm going to, I'm, you know, it's like we, in, in, in the 12-step in programs, we call it filling a God-sized hole, right? And we do that with these Western ideas that we're taught, you know, in our defense, we're taught on television, this is what makes you happy. You know, you got to get the, you got to get the wife and the family and the, and the car and the house and the bank account, and you got to pay your taxes and do this. And if, and if everybody knows who you are, you're even better fame. 
being the number one most incredible thing that you could possibly achieve to, to if everybody is saying that guy is wonderful, well, you know, even if 500 people say you're not, it doesn't matter. I, I, I got a gold record, right? I got a Grammy or whatever it is that you think is going to, you know, fill that up. And I, you know, I think 2010 was the beginning of me abandoning this sort of bab, you know, to put it in like, I'm not a Rastafarian, but to put it in Rastafarian terms or even biblical terms, Babylonian, this Babylonian idea that I'm going to play into Babylon, into this world, this world of things, of earthly satisfactions. It's just, it's, it wasn't enough for me. So there was this existential crisis that took place in 2010 that, that was really the relapse itself. It, 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 you know, the drugs were, drugs were a manifestation of that. It, it was me reevaluating what's important in this world. And I, I knew in 2010 that what was important in this world was a relationship with God. But, but I, wasn't, I wasn't willing to explore that now. And even today, I have to work at it every morning. You know, I have to start my day like that. You know, or it doesn't happen. So you're almost willing to give up your life. You're strung out on drugs. Yeah. You get arrested and you wind up in prison. Yeah. At that point, like how long does it take for you to think, oh, I got to rethink these things? Or, or how do you get back the drive to say, I, I want to do what I'm good at? Okay. Wow. That's a really good one. So I get out of jail in 2011 in Indiana and, and I'm on probation. So I can't, as, as my probation dictates, I, I cannot be in bars. I cannot leave the state. And I have five years of this. Okay. So this was in many ways, a good preparation for what the rest of the world went through, especially in the music world, you know, in 2019. Right. So, so I turned to Skype and I finally start teaching harmonica over the net, which had been requested of me for years. I had this YouTube channel that was very successful that I had completely taken for granted and wasn't utilizing. I would post videos whenever I felt like it. I had 30, almost 30,000 subscribers uh, and I, I wasn't making any money off YouTube because I wasn't respecting the way that the, the, the platform works in terms of, you know, analysis of the analytics and in, in, in algorithms and how the thing works. How do you, you know, asking yourself questions, what, what do my viewers want? You know, how frequently do they want it? How can I give it to them that frequently? So, Finally, I started giving in and I started teaching Skype lessons because I had to. It was the only way to make a living other than going back and waiting tables again. And does teaching come easy to you? It did. It, it, it always has. I, I love music so much. I'm overly enthusiastic. I, I've been privileged to be around musicians that were not blues musicians that, that told me, you know, hey, listen, you know, this is a major third. Okay. And, and I'm like, I don't know what that is. No, 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 no. Y yes, you do. And, and no, I don't know. No, no. Okay. Here, here's how we find it. Right. And, and just calmly and, and, and lovingly taking me through the basic language of basic chord structure, scales, intervals, this universal language of simple mathematics that, that opens a, a entirely it's like in the movie contact with jodie foster 
where they they receive the transmission from the aliens and they're looking at it from a, a two dimensional or three dimensional kind of point, and then they realize that it's it's actually the the it's a cube, right? It's it's a it, it, the, that's what music theory did for me. Okay, so coming at that like like learning that from such a resistant place, like oh, a little Walter didn't need that, and BB King didn't need that, and this blues is about whiskey and voodoo and and you know. You know, having people that were patient enough to to go to weave that through that bullshit of mine gave me the ability to work with harmonica players, <laughs> okay, who are the ultimate of that. Like, oh, you know, fuck pedals and fuck theory and fuck, you know, you know, I don't need none of that. Not just blow the damn thing and drink some whiskey and you, you know. That whole attitude, right? It's so, it's very prevalent in blues music, but it's even more prevalent in this instrument. And, and, and especially because you can buy one already tuned to the key. In other words, the scale is built into it. So, so they don't have to know anything about the scale because somebody designed it to be in a scale. And, and that scale is relative in many ways. To, to, to all these other things, right? So you can play this thing in a few different keys or, or more, all 12 really, any harmonica. But in order to do that, you sort of have to start learning about, well, what scale was it supposed to be in to begin with? And what is that scale? Okay, it's the major scale. So that kind of, having had that resistance to, to music theory and having had that broken through, by so many wonderful, patient, loving, beautiful people, not unlike the people that worked on my sobriety with me, right? Similar, very similar, resistant persona. Uh, uh, you know, I'm not, I don't need this. I'm not going to do it. It's not important. I don't want to, right? And, and having somebody, I, I think I was given a unique set of tools having finally walked through that door, seen that Jody Foster cube of alien transmission right like wow you know like geez all my heroes love this stuff like you know like you know john coltrane and charlie parker and you know the the people i play with on the bandstand and, you know i'm making more money now i'm getting more jobs i'm playing in country i can take a gig with a country band i could take a gig with a pseudo jazz band i mean my look at my new project now you know city country city with joe you know without that without some knowledge of harmony that gig is above any harmonica player that that subscribes to the little Walter theory. Now, now many of them would say, "Well, why would you want to? Why would you need to?" Right? You know, fine, fine. Look, I, I live in New Orleans. I know what funky music is. You know, I that's the other. That's why I love this city so much. Isn't it a blues town? It's not a jazz town. It's not a funk town. It's not a Zydeco town. It's all of it. It's all of that shit together. All of it. No, what kind of music does Dumpster Funk play? Anyway, what, what what kind of music did Dr. John play? Was it blues? Yeah. Was it jazz? Yeah. Was it funk? Yeah. Right? Oh, what kind of music, for that matter, what kind of music did Janis Joplin play? So how does the city define who you are as a musician? I think it's it's in that it doesn't. It, I, I'm, I'm here as a student, okay, of... Uh, an unfathomable amount of history that is like ingrained in the people that grew up here. Every Wednesday night, I go to a detox to talk 
to the kids about sobriety. And we play drums and harmonicas for them. Okay. They're not kids. They're adults. They're in early sobriety. First 10 days, 11 days. I am repeatedly amazed at the amount of historical musical knowledge that they know about this his, about this city that I haven't been able to learn in 10 years of academic study. Okay. So people from Chalmette, people from the West Bank, people from Mid-City, people from Treme, just regular kids that grew up that are 20 years younger than me, who, who grew up around Snoop Dogg and Lil Wayne and all that stuff, still know more about Mardi Gras Indian culture than I do. So I'm, I, I'm a student here. I'm a, I'm a student now. I'm a child of God that has been placed here in a position to try more importantly than anything to just remain open-minded. Okay. You know, that's what the city has taught me. I'm just grateful to be part of it. Should the city ever embrace me, which it is very slow to embrace people that are not from here. Should it ever embrace me as one of its own? Uh, that would be fabulous. If that doesn't happen, that is fine. Okay. I am privileged to be part of this city as a resident that is not from here. <laughs> um, in the five years that you were on probation and you started teaching, did you have a plan, an overall plan of what was going to happen after the five years and how you would pursue your career or how you'd pick up your career and go forward? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was right away, it was get back to here. Okay, so it was get back to New Orleans. That was number one. So so the day the probation was over, the day, Mako, I, I went to my court date with a U-Haul, with everything I had in it, okay? Because I knew I had a good probation officer and I knew that I had completed my, uh, my all, the, all the things. I knew there was no way they were going to say, you can't leave now. So I, I left that day. Even prior to that, I was hiring the bad kind, which was a New Orleans band at that time with Sam Hotchkiss, John Lisi, Andy Kurse, and a drummer named Adam Bommel. I was hiring them to come pick me up in Indiana and do short tours because I was allowed to towards the end to leave the state. That's why how I did the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's how I did the record with Johnny Winter that won the Grammy. Okay. That's how I was able to go out. Okay. Um, so yes, there, the plan was to come down here and make music and to, and to start to incorporate some of the sounds of this music of, of what is in the city. Okay. Into that music, whether that be funk or whether it be blues or whether, whatever it is. Yeah. And how has that, I'm not sure if comeback is the right word, but how has that plan been working out i think okay um i've gotten in my own way you know there, there's been two relapses since then okay on drugs so you know there was uh there was four years of sobriety of continuous sobriety that happened started in indiana and led to my first you know year or two here and then there was a significant relapse okay uh where the booking agency that I was with and still am with was skeptical for, for good reason about continuing to work with me. Um, I was involved with a label 
that was less than um, professional, okay, that put out two records of music that largely was ignored and not heard and not publicized. I didn't have interviews with Mako, okay, or anybody else, right? They, especially the second record, Chops Are Rolling. There was not one publicist hired. There wasn't one ad taken out. I, be, I believe the album worldwide got four or five reviews in the entire world. So there was a lot of setbacks that happened, some of my own making, and some because the only people that would work with me, Mako, coming out of jail and prison and stuff, were people that, you know, couldn't get other people, right? You know, or, yeah. So, so I didn't really have the, you know, very many options. There, there wasn't, you know, Blind Pig and Alligator and people like Mike Zito, they weren't banging the door down like, hey, Jay, you know what, let's, let's make a record together because everybody was kind of still watching from afar saying, hey, listen, you know, he seems better, but maybe not, right? And I think it wasn't until like, I think people can, are very intelligent. I think people can sense when things, when there's a sense of resolution. And something happened two years ago, and I'm going to speak very bluntly here. In in no way, shape, or form am I in in any way ministering or preaching to anybody. But for me personally, there was a shift that took place that was, and the catalyst of that that shift was a belief in Jesus Christ or, or, or a decision to turn my life over to Christ. When that took place, a lot of other things started to happen for me. A forgiveness of myself, an ease, a, a, a confidence. When you started the interview and you said to me, hey, Jay, listen, if there's anything you want to take out, don't, you know, there's not, I'm not afraid anymore. Okay. I, I know that I'm flawed. Okay. I know, I know that I'm forgiven. I'm not trying to come off as somebody that knows anything. And, and nor am I trying to push, you know, Christianity in any form, way, shape or form on anybody. I'm just talking about what appealed to me. I think when that happened, people like Mike in, in my agency, they noticed, it took about a year, but they noticed that there was something different about me. There was, there, that edge was gone. That anger was gone. That, 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 that egomaniac with the inferiority complex, not only was that beat down by jail and prison, but... But it was all. It was also now smiled upon in a way. Like, hey, look at, yeah, you know, like you said, if it wasn't for that, would I have achieved all that? No, right? You know, it was kind of an acceptance of, you know, no matter no matter how far down the scale I had gone, I could see how my experience would benefit others, right? And then this focus kind of came where I started caring about people. <laughs> Is that weird? I think for, you know, somebody that's pretty close to, you know, a sociopath or pretty close to a borderline personality disorder kind of behavioral thing, I think it's weird. But weird's not the right word that I shouldn't ask that. But I mean, how how easy is that for you to accept and how how easy is that for you to wear? It's not easy for me to sit here and tell you that the reason that this happened (laughs) That's because of a belief or, or a decision to turn my will and life over to the care of God. Okay. 
that that's not an easy thing to say. It's abstract. Okay. But I also had no problem for many years implying that the devil was part of what was driving me either. And so as I get older, I think it's important for me (laughs) to say out loud, Hey, listen, there's also a good side of that. You know, you know, look, what appealed to me about Crowley, Alistair Crowley, was this idea that is probably in a modern sense represented best in the books that Joseph Campbell wrote called The Power of Myth. And it talks about us working with archetypes. Okay. We have archetypes in our life. Okay. This is a humongous part of the occult is it's not so much believing in God or believing in demons or believing in that, but it's using the images that we've been led to believe or, or have been that have some kind of meaning or impact on us to, to our advantage, to, to manipulate our personality and get what we want. We, We see it now talked about a lot, like specifically in the book, the secret. Okay. Where, where we talk about, you know, manifestation, Okay, this word manifestation, or you, you know, the child that puts the collage together of all the Ferrari cars and the job, right? And, and I'm going to manifest this Ferrari in my life, or the businessman who puts together the five year plan, right? Like, if I do this, this, and this you know, th- that kind of attitude, right? I'm still doing that, I'm just using a different set of archetypes. I accept hundred percent that you may not benefit as well as I do from my archetypes. However, these are the only archetypes that I truly believe in. And I'm crazy enough to maybe I can recognize that they are archetypal in nature, but I really believe that's how it is. Okay. Like I really believe there's a devil. Like, I really believe in Christ. I really believe in that. Okay. I don't know if it's necessary for other people to be that crazy, but this shit, this shit's crazy, right? Like cats, sunrises, sunsets, porches, music, harmonics, uh, the vibrations, energy, the dark matter, quantum physics, this is some nutso stuff. And I, and I'm way of the, of the mind of intelligent design is probably mathematically closer to provable than random. Right. Right. What does the fact that Mike Zito said, I'm interested in your album or, (laughs) or even before that, the fact that you made this album, what does that mean to you? Because it's a great album. Thank you, Marco, very much. Um, It's growing up for me, okay? It's relaxing. What I hear in in the record, okay, well, first of all, I'm in debt to Joe Crown, okay? Joe believed in me, and Joe is the open-minded one here, okay, to say, hey, I'm going to allow not only a harmonica player, okay, that's going to have some difficulty playing with complete chromaticism. Okay. Involved in this music physically, physically difficult. 
to, to play with that. N- not only am I going to allow him into this Maple Leaf, Chikiwawa, New Orleans funk jazz setting, but I'm going to allow a harmonica player that's in and out of detox, okay? That's in and out of stability, okay? I- into my very, very stable and organized life. So there's that, okay? Second, the 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 music on the on the CD, predominantly the covers that Joe chose, which are most of them, okay. Upshot, Billy Joe, um, Down and Dirty that he wrote. Um, uh, mama told me, my mama told me so. The Crusader song, okay. All all that music is music that Joe gave to me and said, hey, you know, kid, if you want the money, you know, learn it, right, right. So, so there's a willingness on my part, but, but it's not, there wasn't, it wasn't hard. It, it was, it, there, I didn't have to garner willingness. I, I love that kind of music. I love 60s B3 music. I love Jimmy Smith. I always thought it was blues with just a little tiny bit more harmonic sophistication. Okay. And I don't, no, I don't have the patience to take this thing and to play bebop on it, like Howard Levy, or or some of these Eastern European kids that are that have sort of sprung up out of result of me and Howard, okay, that have taken you know the overblow chromaticism idea and, and moved it into a, a a hard bop or jazz or bebop thing. I, I don't have the patience for that. I, I'm in many. I'm not done learning, but I in many ways, I don't have the, the bandwidth left in my little computer here, you know, to, 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 to do that. But I do understand how to arpeggiate sixth, seventh, and ninth chords, major and minor. I do know what a shuffle sounds like and swing. I can double time and sixties B3 music is perfect for that. And so, yeah, there's some curveballs on the CD, you know, um, for, you know, for most harmonica players, but in many ways, it's a very natural thing. So to me, when I listen to the record and I listen to what, what I've brought to the record, as opposed to what I've done with every other recording I've ever done in my entire life is there's a a real sense of relaxation that you can hear. Now, yeah, there's still moments where I push things and, 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 and there's still that urgency. That's just part of Jason being manic and Jason being insecure Okay, but it, in brilliantly so, so to speak, you know, I don't mind saying it. There, there's moments of brilliance there, of Jason, shit that Jason does that n- nobody else does, okay? But when I listen to it, I don't hear it that way. I go, geez, Jay, you're fucking up, right? You know, <laughs> right? But like down and dirty, the way the solo starts, or city, country, city. There, you know, the, numerous reviewers have used a word that has never been used ever to describe my playing restraint. And and I'm just so thankful that I have been able to relax enough to, to go back to what those DW Gill and Madison Slim and Hummel and Kim were saying is, Hey kid, you know, relax, right? Yeah. Don't you have to play every note, you know, you know, know, I don't have nothing. I think there's a lot. The album has nothing to prove. So where does it take you next? How does it change where you were going to go next? Yeah, yeah, I want to do like more of the same, right? Like, I mean, it's it's a little hard right now because Joe's with Kenny, okay? And, you know, Kenny's gigs take priority. So I can't really book the trio, 
Okay. So, yeah, you know, we do we do gigs, okay, and we we have gigs in between Kenny's gigs, but I can't I can't put together a lifestyle that's built around this trio now, a tour, to touring, right, all year long, right. I'd like to do another record with that. I'm, I think we have a new manager. I, I think the new manager is into revitalizing the bad kind. Um, I need to put some energy and some thought into what that's going to look like in the future. Um, that band will never have a jazz element to it. And I need to accept that e- either. I have to change the entire personnel. Okay. Or at least some of it, or, or I have to find a way to make different music. That's just as cool. That doesn't have that. And then have my outlet elsewhere. But I don't think that I need, it used to be like with new blood was a band that was trying to be everything. It was trying to be jazz. It was trying to be rock. It was trying to be blues. It was trying to be all that was trying to be songwriter. It was trying to be jam band. That band tried to do everything. I don't think I need to do that. I, I'm, I'm lucky enough that I've lived long enough that there are artists that call me and say, Hey Jay, can you play this? And you know, Nick Moss or, or JP source with, can, we have a gypsy jazz sort of band, right? With Ann Harris. And you know, I do that. I'm recording with them too. And then I have the thing with Joe crown. And then I have the thing with the bad kind, right? So I think what's what we're going to see is an, another record with Joe, I hope, that's largely more of the same. You know, probably some different covers. Maybe a little jazzier than last time. Like may, maybe we'll throw in some standards like Autumn Leaves or Softly as in a Morning Sunrise. Or, you know, maybe we'll get a little out of that blues jazz thing. Maybe we'll go a little deeper in, into some some standards, okay? And And of course, maintain that New Orleans funk element. Okay. There's a lot of songs that we didn't have time to record and a lot of originals too, that I can't do with the bad kind that are ready to go. Right. That there's an easy, another album anytime Mike wants it. Okay. Out of that outfit. But I think we will see another album out of the bad kind this year. That's pretty heavy on the rock, on the rock blues element. I think we're, we're considering a couple of Zeppelin covers. Right. And you know, some crazy stuff. Right. So with all that's gone on, including the pandemic and including hurricanes and everything, how are you feeling about life? I think that I, I'm like everybody else. Uh, okay, I, I have fear. Um, I have anxiety. I, I think I have a projected idea of how I would like to think, see things go socially, politically, blah, blah, blah. Okay. What I am trying to do every day is recognize that all of that is beyond my control. That again, I'm a flawed human being. And when I say that I'm a child of God, what I'm telling you, Mako, is that I need to put the majority of my decisions in his hands every day. So I, I need to look at what it is that I can change. How can I be a better husband? How can I be a better musician? How can I be a better label mate? How can I be a better brother? Okay, that, that's the stuff I need to focus on. Major and minor, pentatonic scales, you know, you know, paying the rent, you know, being, getting the YouTube videos out, right? I need to work on progress as a person. I continue 
to, to take that, that God-sized hole, which is now being filled and fill it even more with something, you know, that I think most people would, would look at it as abstract. But, but to me, it's not. It, it's, it's very tangible. It, it consists of helping other people, okay, being part of my community, okay, that, you know, those are the things that are the most important to me in life. And I do believe that should I focus on those things, that all of these other musical things will fall in place. And, and I also believe, and, and, and this is not a popular belief system now, that, that, I, that I can make a, a very significant impact in this world on a local level. Okay. You know, beyond local, how I talk to my neighbor. Okay. Conversations that I have about these subjects that we're also upset about politics and race and, and, and culture and all this stuff, having these conversations on the porch with a cigar, not on Facebook, not on Twitter. I don't believe that anybody is solving any problems doing that. And, and, and also on top of that, I am not equipped. I am not an expert political an, an analyst. Okay. I, I don't, I'm like with Zappa on this shit. Like, I think like politics is the theater of the military industrial complex, right? I, I, I'm not sure that there's not, they're not working together against us, right? You know, I, I got a lot of conspiracy theorists in me, right? Like, I, you know what I mean? Like I connect dots all the time that don't need to be connected. Okay. If you can't tell from this conversation, right? Like, have you thought you know, about writing a book? We, we tried, um, uh, there's a harmonica player named Patty Wells that has two years worth of hour or more long Skype videotapes where I give the whole life story. Um, he said he was going to try to get it published. I haven't heard from him in like a year. Um, I think that it may be more effective to, to do the entire thing as YouTube videos. <laughs> I, I, I mean, who even reads books anymore? <laughs> Well, I think people are out there reading. <laughs> I, I, yeah, maybe there, maybe I would, but, but yeah, yeah, man. Uh, I don't know. I would love to, right? But like, I think there's a lot of people that I, I love that there are people that are outspoken on issues of human rights and equality and stuff like that, right? the The problem is, is that like the the minute that Walmart is on board with those things, okay, which they are, okay. Something's something's wrong, okay. Something's there's an agenda at work here, okay, and we need to look at that, right? What is that, right? Is it, is it really because Walmart cares about homosexuals right now, and do they, right? Or or is there is there a reason for that, right? And, and what what is the reason, and, you know? And who's funding all this stuff like that we see? everywhere and who you know it's just the same way like when we were talking about in the beginning we were talking about music and i said that I, I gravitated towards punk music because there wasn't so much money behind it right because because when somebody pays you a bunch of money you're in many ways indentured you know like for example let's say for example this broadcast was you know sponsored by honer harmonicas oh, i might have to put in a couple of plugs for honer <laughs> talk about that right right or you asked me what you know right right like or say i wasn't with honer which i am say i wasn't and you asked me what i thought of this particular model of harmonica i, I may give you a real answer but but you know i'm not 
I get it. You know, right, right. And, and, and this idea that like, that even, that even questioning that, which in, in a court of law, we call that a conflict of interest. But, but now, should we question that? Well, where does this political party get its funding from? Where does the World Health Organization get its funding from? Where, you know, should, if we do that, we're, we're suddenly conspiracy theorists. Right now, I understand there are real deal scary conspiracy theorists spreading misinformation, right? But maybe it's maybe they're maybe they're employed by the <laughs> by the other people that do that. At least some of them, right? So I'm crazy. This is why, like, this is why, like, if you're a Democrat or a Libertarian or a Republican, you don't want me on your side, right? <laughs> this is why, right, right? You don't. You don't want a guy talking about God and the devil and werewolves and Bigfoot and UFOs and everything like all the shit that I believe in. You don't want me, you know, as a as the spokesperson for the LGBTQ community, right? Not to mention I'm married to a woman now, right? And the B, the B is lost, right? What happened to B? <laughs> B is gone. I was going to ask you about your marriage, but I don't think it's my place. I think it's great that you're married. You just seem like a very hap- happier person. She's wonderful. Like, I'm just, yeah. She's like incredibly whimsical. Like, she's a perfect foil to my nonsense. You know? Yeah. Well, good for you. Brady was Brady was good too, though. Right? He was, yeah. yeah. Jason, it's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for giving me this time. I, I, I didn't let you do enough talking, right? As usual. <laughs> well, right? nobody cares about what I have to say. I don't know about that. No, but I, I appreciate Mike you Zito that. does. Mike Zito does. Yeah. <laughs> um, thank you so much for doing this. I, I, I'm, I'm thrilled. Beautiful. Thank you, Mako. You take care. Bye.